He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you, and his love will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and reproach for you. At that time I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time I will gather you. At that time I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. This is God's word. You may be seated. Tonight we're going to be looking at Zephaniah, a little bit easier to pronounce than Habakkuk. Does everybody have an outline? Forgot to ask that during the announcements. Everybody have an outline? Fantastic. We can get started. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for allowing us to come in this moment to praise you and to recognize you and these words that we sing and the words that Efton have just, has just read to us, Father, reminders of the greatness of your being, that you are God and we are not. That you are our God and nothing less. We are people and nothing more. And it's our prayer, Father, that as we do business with this text of Zephaniah, the entire book tonight, that you'll open our eyes to it and open our hearts to it and and open our ears to its words in such a way, Father, that it goes all the way down inside of us to the very inner core of our being and that it transform us and that it help us, Father, to draw near to you in ways that bring you honor and glory. Thank you, Father, for these these ancient sacred words, for these ancient sacred texts. We pray never to be lackadaisical or flippant with them, but to know that these words were first birthed in your heart, in your mind, and transmitted to us through your Spirit. That you choose to speak to your people and choose to speak to all of creation. Father, we, we, we seek in all things to be your people. Help it to be so. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We didn't do it this morning because of time, but there is a statement that we use at the beginning of these, these lessons that remind us what the Bible really is. The Bible is not a collection of random stories. It's not hodgepodge. It's not just put together in a haphazard kind of a way that, you know, there were, there were some texts that just kind of got strewn, strewn together and, and, and sewn together. The Bible is not a collection of random stories, but one story. It's about God. It's the story of what God is doing and how God has revealed Himself. It's about man, that we are made in God's image and what went wrong when sin was introduced into the world and what God is doing to put it back together, God's human project. Now tonight we're going to tackle the little book of Zephaniah, and I will be, want to begin by asking uh, a question. Do you recognize the number A113? A113. It's a number, if you, uh, especially if you are a, a parent of children under the age of 12, you know that that's a number that shows up all the time in Disney and Pixar movies. It, is, it shows up in a courtroom scene in Up. It shows up on a door in Monsters U. It's an ear tag on a rat in Ratatouille. 
the license plate number on Andy's car, uh, Andy's mom's car in Toy Story is A113. It's on the diver's camera in Finding Nemo. And it's on the locomotive in the movie Cars. Now, do you remember seeing it? Yeah, sort of. I mean, what does it mean? Well, A13 is actually the classroom number at the California Institute of Arts that all of the animators that are famous and involved in some of the stuff in Hollywood and Disney and so on and so forth, that they all, if they go to Cal Art, that's the room that they go through at the very beginning of their time. And if you see that number in a movie, it means that a Cal Art student was connected to the animation. It's kind of a calling card. It's kind of a, a quiet little calling card that when you see it, a Cal Art student was involved in it. Now, one, one gets the, the same feeling about the prophets of the Old Testament. They show up. They show up and sometimes they are heard and sometimes they are not. Sometimes they are seen and sometimes they are not. But they show up. And they speak a message, a message from God, and they do it in a variety of ways. It's not just pronouncements of judgment, but it's a way of communicating God's Word in such a way that people's hearts are turned. God is not just seeking to th throw truth out there, but God is wanting the truth to be communicated in such a way that His people, His chosen people, His elect people, turn towards Him. And so they speak their message in a variety of ways, sometimes even odd ways, but the presence of the prophet implied something else very important that was often lost on the people, sometimes not even noticed. And it was that God was connected to their context. Now that... It brings up the question that I think each of us need to answer for ourselves personally, and that is, when we read God's Word, does God's Word make us aware of God's presence? Does it make us aware of, 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 of God being a part of our reality? That when we read God's Word and we're hearing God speak, that that is another way to remind us that God is connected not just to the, all of creation in a general way, but is connected to each of us individually in a particular way, in an individual way of knowing what's happening in our hearts and what's happening in our days, that God is connected to our own personal context. God is Creator. He sees and He knows and He observes and He examines and He inspects human life. And because He is that Creator, God is going to have a say in the affairs of man. And the prophet was not only to wake up the people to their conduct, but he was also waking them up to the fact that God is real. That the faith is, 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 is not a plaything, that, that it's, not, it's not a hobby. That faith is at the core of what it means to be a human being. Faith in God, trust in God, obedience to God, a relationship with God. That God is real and really connected to all of our lives. Zephaniah as a prophet is no different. Zephaniah basically is trying to connect the people's mind and their way of thinking to their way of life in light of the reality of the presence, the overarching presence, the umbrella presence of God over all things. So God was connected to their context. And Zephaniah, if we can think about it this way, gives us three pictures to understand it. The first picture is a picture of themselves, of a backsliding faith. Picture number two of the day of the Lord, what the day of the Lord was all about. And then finally in chapter three, a picture of hope. Now here are the three pictures. We begin with the picture of a backslider. Half-hearted devotion to God not only affects you as an individual, but it affects the community that you're a part of, the community of faith that you're a part of. And in 
the, the situation, the reality of Israel, the backsliding on the individual basis affected the entire nation. And what you found during the fruit, um, uh, during the long reign of Manasseh and the short reign of Ammon, kind of the fruit that blossomed because of their leadership and their, their lack of faith and their lack of being good, faithful kings, that it, it had done a tremendous amount of damage to Judah's spirituality overall. While these kings aligned themselves with the empire of Assyria, if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 21 and chapter 23, what you begin to see is that they not only were sort of... Uh, uh, subject kings or uh, tribute giving kings to Assyria, they not only served Assyria, the Assyria's kings, but they also served Assyria's gods. And what you find because of this half devotion, half hearted devotion to God and, 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 and alignment with Assyria, you find Baal and the Asherah and the sun god Shamash and the Assyrian astral deities being introduced into Israel's daily worship. And the sins that came about in Israel because of Manasseh and Ammon, even though Josiah is going to show up and, and try to right all of these wrongs and try to bring revival, Hezekiah on the front end of it doing the same thing, what you find is that sin begins to be categorized in three different ways in, in South Judah. Number one, it's idolatry. Number two, it's syncretism. You know, there came a point... In, in Israel's life, and it's not only talked about in Zephaniah, but it's talked about in the other prophets, where they began to be confused between Yahweh and Baal. And in Zephaniah, between Yahweh and Molech. And so you have that syncretism where, am I talking really to the God that is re revealed in Scripture, or is He really Baal that we learned about with the Assyrians? And then number three, you have idolatry, syncretism. Number three, you have indifference. That God doesn't really matter. And so in Zephaniah chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, we read, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Moloch, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of Him. Up there on the screen, I want you to read with me that last phrase, beginning with those who turn back. Read that with me. Those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of Him. They turn back, they, they do not seek, they do not inquire. Now in a nutshell, to kind of borrow some terminology from Elizabeth Ochtemeyer, where God's character and nature revealed in the sacred story of Scripture becomes blurred. Where we can't tell the difference between Baal and Yahweh, the, the Assyrian astral deities, Asherah, the, the sun god Shamash and Yahweh, when God's character and nature revealed in the sacred story of Scripture become blurred, then matters of worship. How are we going to worship rightly if we do not have a right idea or a right vision or a right understanding of God? The matters of worship and obedience? Who are, who are we going to obey when, when the wills are contrasted and competing with one another? The matters of worship, obedience, and commitment become matters of indifference. It's sort of a cognitive dissonance in the sense that you, know, you, can't, you can't serve two masters. You can't, you can't have two competing truths and survive. And so what people did was to back out. 
there's Yahweh and there's Baal and there's Shamash and there's these astral deities and all of these, these little gods and there's Moloch and there's the child sacrifice that's going on and there's, there's the, uh, the, 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 the immoral sexual priesthood that has found its way into God's people. I mean, how do you live with all of that, those competing truths? The people in Israel, or Judah, decided to back out. They became indifferent. Verse 12, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Indifferent. God's going to do nothing. Indifferent. The Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. In the King James, verse 12 says it this way, And punish the men who are settled on their lees that say in their heart, The Lord will not do good, neither will He do evil. Now that figure, this settling on the lees, is, is taken from the process of making wine. The lees, the lees are the sediment of, of the grapes. And when you're making wine, the new wine sits undisturbed on that sediment just long enough for the wine to get its body and to get its color. And then as soon as that happens, it's got to be poured off into another container. It's got to be, it's got to be removed from, from those leaves or it's going to become moldy and it's going to become syrupy and it's going to become thick. In other words, stagnant. And Judah is being compared to that which is setting so long on, it, on the leaves that it becomes thick and can't move and it can't think and it's become stagnant and it's become moldy in its religion. And the spiritual stagnation of Judah is heard in the words, God is not going to do anything. Don't worry about God. God's, God is not going to do good. He's not going to do bad. You do what you want to do. You do what you need to do. And one of the things that you find in the book of Zephaniah is that as the new reality of the, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and all of that is being introduced, Israel, instead of looking for the way that God wants them to live in that context, have discovered a new way to live. Do it yourself. Do what makes sense. Human conventional wisdom. Don't worry about what God says about this because God is not going to do either harm or good to anybody. Indifference. May show up at the sacrifices, may show up at the festivals, may show up at the temple. But the bottom line is, God's really not going to do anything. And what Judah had done, in essence, was reverse her commitment to God. She had diluted her commitment to God with devotion to false gods and things that are no gods. And the love that they had to God had actually turned to apathy, which is the true opposite of love. You know, when these kids come in for, for premarital counseling, we say, hey, do you love her? Yeah, I love her. Do you love him? Yeah, I love him. Well, do you know what the, the opposite of love is? And they go, well, ah, yeah, I hate. And I say, no, 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 no. When you love somebody and you hate somebody, you're still connected to them. The opposite of love is apathy. You don't really care. You're indifferent. You come to that place where if that person falls off of a mountain or a mountain covers them up, you don't care. You're indifferent to it. And that's what's happened. The love has turned to apathy in South Judah. The true opposite of love. It's no longer, we really care about what God thinks. We really want God to be at the center of our context and our reality. What did He become is God's going to do nothing. Either good or bad. He's not going to do anything. We can do what we want because we're God's people. God's chosen us. Children of Abraham, God will do nothing. 
And because of this reversal of commitment, God is going to bring a judgment that will look like the reversal of creation. Thus the slide. The flood. In Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, I will, and this is the way he begins the book. He's catching their attention right off at the very beginning. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth. What's that sound like? Noah's flood, does it not? I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on on the face of the earth, declares the Lord. The language is reminiscent of the flood in Genesis. That's old news. I mean, Genesis 6 is so far removed from the time of Zephaniah. It's old news. It happened such a long, long time ago. Why bring it up, Zephaniah? Well, the reason he brings it up is that it was a part of the cultural and spiritual psyche of the Hebrews and had been for centuries. The world, they knew it, had become so wicked that every inclination from the heart of man was evil all the time. And God became so grieved in his heart that he repented of the fact that he had ever made man. And how bad does it have to be For God to be grieved to the point that He wishes that He had never made man. That's pretty bad. And if you remember our study of Genesis, you know that things have just gotten out of control, that that people are are a law unto themselves, that that the sin is, is spreading throughout all of the world like pollution, and the world is being corrupted. The thorns and the thistles of Genesis 3 have entered into everybody's life, and not just creation. It's pretty bad. And God starts all over again with Noah. And God's creation is reversed. He uncreates it with the flood that removes all living things from the face of the earth. And they knew that. They knew it. They knew the theology of it deeply. And when Zephaniah begins talking that way, the reason he does it, right there at the beginning of that book, is to get their attention, to slap them in the face with how terrible and how awful things have become in Jerusalem. At the end of that chapter, chapter, in another verse, he uses the image of fire. And he says, in the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. What is that an image of? What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Because of the immorality and the sinfulness and the the disregard, disregard for humanity and the oppression and the injustice and all of those things that were happening, all of a sudden, without warning, there was judgment that came. And this time it was fire. And so at the beginning of the chapter and the end of the chapter, the chapter is bookended with ways that God has destroyed in order to get His people to see Him clearly. Which now brings us to the picture of the day of the Lord. The concept of the day of the Lord, and we've we've talked about it in part over the last couple of weeks uh, as we've, we've talked about the prophets. The concept of the day of the Lord has its roots in the ancient theology of Israel's holy wars. You know, if you think about Joshua going all the way to Saul uh, somewhere in the the 13th century, going all the way to the 11th century and the time of Saul and the time of David. And in the day of the Lord, God is always the divine warrior. He is the one who leads Israel to battle. He is the one that wins the victory for them. And there are times, like in 1 Samuel chapter 7, that he uses thunder. Other times in Joshua chapter 10, falling stones, he uses darkness. In Joshua 24, and water and the earthquake in Judges chapter 5. At other times, God somehow inspires terror and panic among the enemy, and they do themselves in. But the prophets now put a new twist on the day of the Lord. 
That is that God could and would turn His might that has always been used against Israel's enemies towards Israel herself because of her unfaithfulness. And it's not just Zephaniah that talks about it. The fact that God's judgment is real. Amos, chapter 5. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. You know, people are sitting around in Amos' time around 762, 765-762 B.C. Jeroboam II is king of those northern tribes. Amos goes up there. He's trying to get the people during a time in which the economy is going up and the military power is getting stronger and the borders are widening and everybody thinks that everything is great. And yet, the way that God sees into their context and God sees their reality is that they are falling apart spiritually. And they begin to list all of the sins. And in chapter 5, Amos says, you, you know, you people talk about the day of the Lord all the time. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake, a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? The point being... That what was darkness for those other nations on the day of the Lord when God's might as a warrior came to bear upon them. That that same might, that same power, that same judgment will come on northern Israel. Zephaniah says it this way. He kind of says it in a, in a different way. Look at verse 7. It starts off by saying, Be silent before the Sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those He has invited. Now, the beginning of verse 7, be silent before the sovereign Lord, is the priestly cry. As you know, there were all kinds of sacrifices that were legislated by Leviticus and, and, and Deuteronomy. And there were all kinds of sacrifices for all kinds of different things. Not just for atonement, but there were friendship, there were forgiveness. Uh, all, all kinds of sacrifices. There were even sacrifices that consecrated the soldiers before they went to war. And one of the things that were said at the beginning of the, the sacrifice by the priest was, be silent before the Lord God. And in Zephaniah, this, this same priestly cry is being uttered in the context of the day of the Lord. Be silent before the sovereign God. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. Now when they heard that, they would think of a very specific sacrifice. The sacrifice that's being pictured here is the sacrifice that consecrated the warrior before him going off to battle. But this time, it's not the, the, the Jewish or the Hebrew soldier that is being consecrated who hears the priest say, be silent before the Lord God. It is, it is the, the, the army that God is going to raise up to punish His people that's being consecrated and chosen by Him to bring this to fruition. And the, and the end of the chapter of, of chapter 1 describes what the day of that Lord will entail, what it will look like. Well, chapter 2 opens the door for hope. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, gather together, gather yourselves together. You shameful nation. Before the decree takes effect and that day passes like windblown chaff. Before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you. Before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what He commands. Seek 
righteousness, seek humility, perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. And then in chapter 3 at the very end, at that time I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. And at that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes. Some centuries later, there was another prophet that was quoted in Jerusalem. And this time, it is one of the apostles who's quoting from Joel and is saying that what Joel talked about back there all those centuries ago is coming to fruition right now. And he begins to speak to them about the fact that you know there was this Messiah that came into their midst that, and gave them all of the proofs that they needed to understand that Jesus was that Messiah. That the one that they had crucified 50 days prior was the one that all of the prophets had talked about, that all of the Scripture had talked about, that they had somehow in their mind and in their, their unfaithfulness and their inability to understand the reality of God and what God was doing in Scripture and what God was doing with, with His people, that instead of falling on their faces and worshiping Him, they, they, they went the other direction. They reversed everything. They reversed everything and killed Him. And Peter makes the point that all of the prophets had been talking about for centuries. That there was going to be one that God would send that would return the people to Him. That would, that would deal with the oppression. That would deal with the injustice. That would deal with, with the lame. That would deal with the blind. That would deal with all of those that were in prison. Deal with the stranger. Deal with the alien. Deal with the widow. Deal with the orphan. Deal with everyone who was vulnerable. Everyone who was subject to injustice. Everyone who at the hands of the wickedness of men had felt some kind of oppression. And not only would He deal with it in a man-to-man, human-to-human kind of a, of a scenario, but He would deal with it at a cosmic level. That in this Christ, all of God's will was done perfectly. And that in that one, His righteousness would stand for all of all humanity, all, every person who believed in Him and had faith in Him, that His righteousness would stand for their righteousness. And in so doing, He would be able to gather them back together and bring them in and deal with them in love and in righteousness the way that he had always wanted to with his human project. I don't know where you are tonight, but I wonder if when you think about God's Word and you think about creation, you think about your relationships, you think about all of the things that you encounter on a daily basis, do you think about God being at the very core of that reality? As a believer, we should. We should understand that there is nowhere that we go that He does not see, that, that some... There is no place that we go into that He somehow is, is blinded or shielded from knowing what's going on with us. That God is, is such a real, the most real part of our reality. The most real, even though He is invisible, the most real, most dense part of our day. And so understanding the greatness of His presence and so understanding the greatness of, of His will and His presence and His love and His mercy that it changed everything in every place, in every context that we go into. 
But if you've never become His child and you believe that God is real and that you believe as Zephaniah and other, the other prophets have said that God punishes those who are not in accordance to His will, those who are not in relationship with Him, those who are not a part of His plan, those who are not a part of His obedient community, then there is a day of the Lord that awaits that is unspeakable in its devastation to a human person, to a human being. And what we want to do tonight is while we're singing this next song that Jeff leads us in, we want to give you an opportunity to come down to the front and to talk to our shepherds who will talk to you about what it means to be baptized. What it means to participate through faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. What it means to confess that Jesus is your Lord. What it means to to repent, that biblical word that talks about coming to our senses, of reversing our tracks to go not away from God, but to God. And what it means to persevere as a Christian because God has put His Spirit in you and has made you a part of His family, of His church, that, that you have the opportunity to become part of a community as you are being transformed day by day into the likeness of Jesus. And in so doing, finding every blessing, finding every hope, finding every ounce of peace, every inexpressible syllable of joy actually becoming yours, regardless of the context you find yourself in, because God is there with you in that context, and you recognize it. If that describes you tonight, then while Jeff is leading us in the song, we want you to come down and talk to Gilbert or Daniel while the rest of us are praising God together. Let's stand and sing.